In July of 1741, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This was a sermon that was very different for him because he usually preached on God's love and grace and mercy and patience. But he was challenged by the fact that the congregation for which he preached was very complacent. It seemed like they could do, they felt like they could do whatever they wanted to and be fine in the eyes of God. He wanted to show them the horrors of hell through his sermon. He wanted to show them the dangers of sin and the terror that they should be feeling at the thought of being lost for all eternity from God. See, he desired to show to them another aspect of God, which is his wrath. As he preached that sermon, he so frightened the audience with his graphic descriptions of what the scriptures told us about hell that the listeners couldn't even let him finish the sermon. For the fact that they were screaming in horrors, what shall we do to be saved from this kind of eternal destination? I think part of the challenge that they had is a challenge that we have today. It's the fact that we try to ignore the reality, the truth of, which is God's wrath. You know, when we talk about it, there are even some people who deny that God has a, a wrathful side, if you will. They'd much rather hear about love and grace and mercy and patience. And trust me, any man who stands in the pulpit would much rather talk about that. But brothers and sisters, when we're called to declare the whole counsel of God, we cannot dismiss the fact that God is a God of wrath. And it it perfectly keeps in line with what scriptures teach. Think about this. From what does one need protection or grace or forgiveness or mercy from if God's wrath isn't real? You know, Paul informed the saints at Rome in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Behold, therefore, the goodness... And did he stop there? No. He said, goodness and severity of God. On them which fell severity, but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. Again, interesting to note, the word severity here in the Greek means to be cut or to cut off. And again, the Jews who rejected God, what happened to them? They were cut off. And the Gentiles who found faith in God and belief in God and obedience to God, Paul says that they were found faithful. We need to understand that God has a dual nature. For those who are disobedient, he will cut off us from him for all eternity. And it's those who are obedient to him that will find themselves in that final day on the right side of God spending eternity with him in heaven. See, God has always warned his people. And he warned Israel of the conditional nature of the way that they were continuing to live in disobedience to him. And he told them about what the results of that unbelief would be. 
Again, you know, when we go back and look at Romans chapter 11, if you go back a couple of verses prior to verse 22, which we looked at, he says, because of, why were they cut off? Because of their unbelief. But those Gentiles were found in favor because thou standest by faith. Now, I understand that there are those who will ask, well, what about God's love? Don't, don't we need to talk about God's love? Absolutely, we need to talk about God's love, because God is love. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So he has provided for us that ability to be reconciled to him through the sending of his Son, through the perfect life of his Son, through the death on the cross of his Son and the shedding of blood. But brothers and sisters, that's not where the story ends. The story continues in the fact that God requires that we love him, and if we love him, Christ says we are to keep his commandments. What does John say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4? And hereby we know that we love him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. See, God. God demands obedience. And he tells us in the scriptures that he is going to punish those who are disobedient. Again, go back to Romans chapter 2. Paul says in verse 8, But unto them that are factions, and obey not the truth, but obey unrighteousness, shall be wrath, and indignation. Whose wrath and indignation? The wrath of the almighty Jehovah God who created the heavens and the earth. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand some facts about God's wrath. First of all, when we talk about God's wrath, one, God's wrath is just. God's wrath is just, just like God's righteousness and love are just. God's wrath is to be feared. Now, you know, I think one of the challenges we have in life is the fact we try to humanize God, and God is not human. God is deity. God is the Father of all. And when we try to take the wrath of God and compare it to the wrath of our parents, brothers and sisters, we better wake up because the wrath of God is so much worse for those who are disobedient. The wrath of God hasn't changed. The wrath of God is consistent from Old Testament to New Testament. And those who were judged with harshly in the Old Testament, we who are also unrighteous, also disobedient, are going to be dealt with by God in the manner in which he is prescribed. And if we need an example, trust me, the scriptures are replete with examples of the severity of God's punishment of the disobedience. See, we need to understand that God's love, or God's wrath, is his love in action against sin. Parents, think of this this morning. When you punish your child because they've done something wrong, is it because you hate them or because you love them? Well, hopefully we all say it's because we love them, right? God's wrath in dealing with sin, dealing with those who are disobedient, is because of his love for us. And it's because he's given us a way 
to be justified and satisfied and saved from his wrath through Jesus Christ. It's not like we have no means by which to avoid hell. God's given us the opportunity. And at some point, brothers and sisters, his patience is going to run out with us. Nowhere in the entirety of Scripture has God's wrath been more powerfully displayed than it was in Genesis chapter 6, verse 17, when we talk about the flood. Again, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Those eight people were allowed to enter the ark after 120 years and to be saved from the floodwaters. But notice what God says. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth. Why? To destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. From under heaven, and everything that is in the earth, what? Shall die. My friends, acknowledging the wrath of God, I'm afraid, forces us to realize a reality that we do not like to recognize. And brothers and sisters, that reality reality is the reality of hell. Chuck, why do you say that we have a hard time understanding the reality of hell? Well, one, it's because most preachers don't preach on it. Most preachers don't preach on it because it's classified or considered too negative. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you, if the mere concept of hell is too negative, what will it, like be, what will it be like being sent there? I mean, am I honestly going to stand up in God, before God in the day of judgment and say, God, I really don't think you can send me to hell because I find it much too negative? Really? Really? Do I, do I, how preposterous, how ridiculous do we think that is? But yet, brothers and sisters, there are people that that is the thought process that they go through. See, we need to understand truth, the reality of truth, does not change just because people don't like it or because people don't agree with it. There's another reason. Hell's a topic that's not preached about. Because most, a lot of people want to pretend that it doesn't exist. Again, we talked in class this morning about there's a, a number of religious groups that, that they would just pretend that hell doesn't exist. You either go to heaven or you're just, you're gone. There's, there's nothing, you know, nothing to worry, nothing to be to fearful of. They, they think that hell is a myth. It's, it's something that uh, does not exist, and those who are outside of Christ won't ever find themselves there. But brothers and sisters, despite denial by mankind, we need to understand that sin demands hell. Those who find themselves unrighteous are going to be found in a place of eternal punishment because hell will be the resting place of those who find themselves in violation of God's law. See, if there was no punishment for sin, why would we have a law? And if there was no law, if there was no punishment for sin, why would Jesus Christ have needed to come and shed his blood? Why do we need to preach on hell? Well, first of all, and you look at this graphic on this slide, 
In 2015, the Pew Research Firm showed that 72% of Americans that were surveyed believed in heaven, while 55% believed in hell. There's 17% of the people say, I'll take the good, but I'm not going to take the bad. I'll believe in the good, but I'm not going to believe in the bad. Now, let's back up from that just a second. If, if truly 55% believe in hell, and 55% believed or understood what the scriptures actually teach about hell, my friends, why is it not causing significant change in people's lives? Why is not the mere fact that hell is considered such a horrendous place that Christ talks about it 12 times or 11 times in the Gospels? Why is there not a public outcry for people or from people for us to talk about the truth and to talk about how do I reform my life? How do I become reconciled to God? My friends, it's because 62 of those respondents said they believed that they were going to heaven. And of those 55% who believed in hell, guess what? Only 1.5% of them thought they were hell-bound. Now, I don't think any of us like to think about my life is such that I'm not going to live forever with God. But is that what the Scriptures teach? Again, if we, we want to be honest, well, let's go back and let's talk about what do the Scriptures teach regarding who's going to be in heaven and those who are going to spend eternity in hell. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. My favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Because it gives me no excuse for not making it to heaven. Christ says in Matthew 7 verse 13 and 14, Enter ye in by the narrow gate... For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Hey, if you want to head down that path to eternal destruction, guess what? It's easy. That path is wide. That gate's wide open. It's easy. And many, what does Christ say? And many are they that enter in thereby. For narrow is the gate, and straightened the path or the way that leadeth unto life, eternal life, and few there are that find it. Brothers and sisters, think about that previous slide. All right? And even if it doesn't apply to your life, think about our commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, preach the truth. You've got one and a half percent of people in America thinking that they're going to go to hell. And Christ says, broad is the way unto destruction and many are going to find it. Can I tell you, one and a half percent is not many? And we need to be preaching the truth about it. Now, skip on down a few verses in the same chapter. Verse 21, he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who pretends or, or, or portrays themselves as religious is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, brothers and sisters, we've talked about a number of times how many denominations there are in this world. And the scriptures tell us there's one body, one church. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, not everyone that says to me that I'm religious or doing the things that I'm doing because of you 
are going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father who is in heaven. For many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy by thy, by thy name, and by thy name cast out demons, and by thy name do many mighty works? Are there a lot of people in this world that prophesy to be religious, prophesy to be followers of God, that do good things? Absolutely. But does that mean that they're following and the commandments of God? No. He says, and then they will, then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Who are those who work iniquity? Those who are not obedient to the Lord God Almighty. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 16. Because in the moments that we have this morning, I want to spend some time, and obviously time will not allow me to, to go into a full uh, discussion about what the scriptures tell us about hell. But I want to hit on some highlights. Because again, if we're going to talk truth, let's talk truth in the graphic details that the scriptures provide. Beginning in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuous every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angel to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in the torments of Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in the flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that those who, can, who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you, that you would send him to my father's house, that I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses, and they have the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. Brothers and sisters, there's four things that I would like for us to think about as we talk about this particular illustration that the Lord has given us. The first of all, two men lived. Second point is, two men died. And in, the, in eternity, the situation that they found themselves in this life was exactly opposite. Lazarus, who was tormented, was blessed, comforted. The rich man who fared sumptuously was tormented. And the last thing I would have you say, or have you understand from this story, is that once... You've passed from this life, brothers and sisters. Christ makes it very clear. There is 
no change in your eternal destiny. Now, that flows in the face of some religious groups who say, give me enough money and I'll pray your, your, the spirit of your beard departed from one to the other. Verse 26, a great gulf are fixed, and you cannot pass, and neither can we. Friends, if you were to die today, which side of that gulf would you find yourself on? Hey, it's easy for, you know, uh, you know us to look at our lives and say, I, I feel like I've done enough. Yeah, I had a, a brother-in-law once. Uh, you know, he, he, had, he had taken off on a, a path of, of sin and, and left the church. And, and when I talked to him about it, do you know what he had the audacity to say to me? He says, I've done enough that God will let me in. Passage, please. Chapter and verse, book, chapter and verse, please. Because that's not what the scriptures teach. What we do in this life will affect where we spend eternity. Steve read this passage for us earlier this morning. Matthew chapter 25, again, Christ talking about that when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and the angels with him, that he will sit on the throne of his glory, and before him will be gathered all of the nations, and he shall separate, separate them, one from another. Brothers and sisters, in that day of judgment, we are going to be gathered together and the Lord is going to divide those who are righteous versus the ones who are unrighteous. And guess what? There is no opportunity in that day to make a change. Your eternal destination is sealed. Now the last I checked, none of us understand on what day we're leaving this earth. And none of us understand what day Christ is coming again. So every day that we continue to wait, every day we continue to try to ride that fence, ride that edge to live the way we want to, but also keep ourselves kind of in the, in the way of the Lord, we're playing a fool's game that we will not win. Christ says, he's going to separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. He'll say to the king, or he'll, uh, the king shall say unto them on his right, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. My friends, can you think about the fact that God has prepared a place for us from the foundation of the world to spend with him for all of eternity? And it's there for our taking if we will but do what he calls us to do which is be obedient to him. But notice what he says, verse 41. Then he'll say unto the ones on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the what? Eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. And these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Brothers and sisters, if we want to talk about the reality of hell, the first thing is, reality of hell is, it is eternal. Christ says right here, we are either going to be in eternal punishment or we are going to have eternal life. Which would you rather have? Well, I sure, whole lot, I sure a whole lot like nice places as opposed to unfriendly, horrible places, don't you? See, when we talk about hell being eternal, we need to understand 
that hell is the place of future punishment. The Greek word for hell is Gehenna. And Gehenna is the word that describes the final and eternal abode of those who are found separate from God. The word Gehenna, or hell, is found 12 times in the New Testament. Jesus uses it 11 times in his ministry. James uses it one time. So to argue the fact that hell is not real or hell is not eternal goes exactly against what's been taught in the Scripture. Matthew 25, 41 tells us that it was originally designed for Satan and his angels, those who had found themselves rebellious to God in the early days of creation. But now it will be the final resting place, Peter says, for all who are unrighteous. And notice, when we talk about the eternal nature of hell, before we ever get to any of the aspects of fire and darkness and so forth, Christ says in Matthew 5 that it would be better to proceed through life with great loss, deprived of an arm, deprived of a foot, deprived of an eye, than rather, rather than having Gehenna as our final destiny. I'll be honest with you, I don't necessarily think going through life without an arm, a leg, a foot, an eye is, is something that I would look forward to. But Christ says, trust me, you'd rather... Go through life like that. If any of those cause you to sin, you'd rather go through life without that than live the eternal destination or, or, or find yourself in the eternal destination for those who found or are found unrighteous. See, if you go back and you look at the original word for Gehenna, it's actually a transliteration of an Old Testament Hebrew expression called the Valley of Hinnom, which denoted a ravine on the southern side of Jerusalem. And if you go back to Second Chronicles, you'll note that this is where children were offered by apostate Hebrews to the pagan god Moloch. And then as time went forward, it eventually became the burning place for dead animals and filth. Brothers and sisters, does that sound like some place that I would even want to visit, much less spend eternity in? Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, At the revelation of the Lord Jesus, from heaven with the angels of his power and flaming fire, rendering vengeance to them that know not God, and to them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They are going to suffer punishment, even eternal destruction from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Brothers and sisters, Scripture does not leave us to wonder. Hell is eternal. Hell is a place of consciousness. There are those that will try to profess to you that, oh, it, it, you know, fire and, and darkness and all this, you know, th- those are just metaphors and and. and it doesn't mean anything. You're not going to, you know, it's not going to be anything that's going to be awful. The Lord affirmed in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, that God is going to destroy those unrighteous, both body and soul, in Gehenna. He employed the Greek word apolomy, and she's 92 times in the New Testament. And it's translated 
to destroy, to perish, to loss, or to be lost. This does not, in any shape, form, or fashion, suggest an annihilation that so many religious bodies profess, where you're not going to feel anything in eternal punishment. Brothers and sisters, you're going to know you're punished. Four times in the account that we just read in Luke chapter 16, the Lord uses the word torment to describe the rich man. Does torment sound like something I'm not going to feel? Does torment sound like something I'm not going to experience? And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where also are the beast and the false prophet. And they shall be what? They shall be tormented day and night. For how long? Forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, not only is hell a place of consciousness, hell is a place of eternity. And what you suffer in that place is going to be suffered from now on. Brothers and sisters, torment certainly implies the fact that there's going to be an awareness on the souls of those who find themselves in hell. And can I add one other thing to this? You know, when we have challenges, tribulations, temptations in our life, when we, when we need strength, when we need comfort, we have the ability today to go to God in prayer. In hell, we're eternally separated from God the Father, and there will be no one to turn to for the comfort that he promises us. See, the Lord describes Gehenna as a place of eternal punishment. Punishment implies consciousness. The wicked are going to be tormented with the fire of Gehenna. And again, you go back to Matthew chapter 13. It says, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness. And they will be cast into the furnace of fire. And there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Torment, eternal punishment, wailing and gnashing of teeth. And Luke chapter 16, verse 24 tells us there's an unquenchable thirst. What do the rich man want? Just Lazarus' finger dipped in water to provide a drop on his tongue. Brothers and sisters, does any of that sound like I'm not going to feel the punishment that is awaiting those who find themselves on the wrong side of God in the day of judgment. You know, if you go back and look at that wailing and gnashing of teeth, it's actually associated with great discomfort. And it is a thing, or the only thing that you can do is cry and wail and yell because the pain is so great. What does the passage say? That those that are wailing and gnashing of teeth are also in the furnace of fire. That furnace of fire, Matthew chapter 9, verse 44, is also described as a place of unquenchable fire. And again, the Greek word for unquenchable is obestos. And it's a term which denotes that which cannot be extinguished. Now, we're going to talk in just a second about darkness. Well, how can we have darkness in hell? 
if there's if there's a fire that's un, unextinguishable. My brothers and sisters, did you ever hear of the fire of the burning bush that didn't consume the bush? I want to trust God that he knows what he's doing and that he can do what he says he's going to do. Hell, brothers and sisters, not only is it eternal, but is a place of consciousness we're going to know. Hell is a place of darkness. Again, go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says that it's, or it speaks of the chains of darkness that the sinful angels were delivered into down in hell. And then if you go to Jude chapter 1, verse 13, it says that the false teachers for whom held the blackness of darkness and it had been reserved for them forever. Now, I grew up on a farm, and we were about four miles outside of town, so we, you know, whatever light we had on, on the place was a, a pole about 15 yards from Dad's shop, and Dad's shop was about 100 yards from our house. And lo and behold, every once in a while, Dad would say, oh, 10, 11 o'clock at night, you know what, I don't think I, I want my shop. Can you go look? 100 yards between our house and his shop, and the darkness of night. Can I say that Olympic runners had nothing on me? I was inspired, brothers and sisters. I got there, checked, and came back. And do you know that that shop was always locked? The scriptures tell us that not only is it chains of darkness, but it's blackness of darkness. And Christ says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, that in regards to the unprofitable one-talent servant, that he would be cast into outer darkness. Not chains of darkness, not blackness of darkness, but to outer darkness. You see, hell is a place of darkness because it's farthest removed from the source of light, God the Father. My friends, there will be nothing in the presence of God because God is not in Gehenna. God is not in hell. God is not in the place of everlasting destruction. God has forever separated himself from those who are out of favor with him. Hell is a place of complete and utter darkness. And as I mentioned before, in our time of torment, in our time of wailing and gnashing of teeth, there will be no one to turn to, to because God is no longer there for us. And then we think about who's going to occupy hell. Again, scriptures are replete with those who find themselves in that day of judgment being told that you're on the left-hand side and you're to depart from me. It's those who find themselves the evil of all ages, beginning with Satan and his angels. It's those who find themselves practicing acts of unrighteousness. And again, I've given you just a few scriptures that give us the litany of characteristics or sins of people that will find themselves separated from God. It's also going to consist of those who have never obeyed the gospel, who find themselves at the age of accountability, knowing that they've sinned and choosing not to do something about it. And it's also going to consist, brothers and sisters, of erring members of the Lord's church 
who determined in their minds for whatever reason to not seek first the kingdom of God. There is no once saved, always saved. That is a doctrine that will cause more people to lose their soul. And it's so simple to understand that it's false. When Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, his purpose was to emphasize to his audience that hell is real. They didn't believe it. They didn't want to believe it. And he wanted to, through the imagery and through the language of his sermon, provide to them the horrific reality of what the scriptures teach about hell. See, I, I don't have to make anything up about the, the horrible nature of hell. The scriptures have done it. And I either believe it's real or I don't believe it's real. And my actions in life tell me which side I've landed on. But the underlying point when we talk about hell is the fact that God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of patience. God is a God of kindness. And God is a God of grace. And he is giving us every chance on the planet to rectify our relationship with him. You see, his act of restraint his acts of mercy give us a chance to mend our ways and come home to him through Jesus Christ. You know, when we think about the biblical description of hell, it's God's way of telling us that hell is far worse than anything we've ever imagined on this earth. Brothers and sisters, can I just, and I'm just going to spitball here, if hell is one one millionth as bad as what the scriptures say it is, I don't want it. I don't want to be anywhere around it. And do you know also the scriptures tell me? That if I do find myself in the eternal destination called hell, burning up in the fires of the furnace, in total darkness, tormented, weeping and gnashing of teeth, that I will have no one but myself to blame. Because God has desired that I come home. God has provided a path for all to be saved, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And that path is found in his scripture, which can convict me of my sin, which can show me the pathway home, the love that he has, the love that Jesus Christ has, and the understanding that he died and shed his blood on my behalf so that I might be reconciled to God Almighty and spend eternity with him in heaven. See, God sent his Son so that we might have salvation. And he's extended the invitation so that those who desire, to desire to live in the beauty and the wonders of heaven, will have that opportunity. Brothers and sisters, what's your choice? What's your choice? I'll be honest with you. It's, it's easy to stand up here and preach and, and talk about hell and talk about the fact that we need to do this and we need to do that. And I understand that we all face challenges and we all face trials. We all face temptations. But brothers and sisters, God has said, I don't care what you have, 
bring it to me. Bring it to me, I'm there. I can help you through. But my friends, we have to make the first step. Are you ready to come to him this morning? Are you willing to say to God, you know, I've sinned. And I do not want to spend eternity separated from you. I pray that you do. If you have challenges in your life, we would ask that you come this morning as we together we stand and sing.